0: Hey there, everybody. It is that time again for Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer. Back this week, after a few weeks far, far away from U.S. politics on the other side of the world.
2: Yes, yeah, so nice of you to come back to us. I was I'm Mar- tempted not to,
0: <laughs> but I'm here.
2: Well, we missed you. I'm Marisa Lagos this week on The Breakdown. As Democrats debate the right message to win over voters and defeat Donald Trump next year, we're going to be joined by a woman who spends a lot of time shaping political messages on issues ranging from abortion to climate change, gun control, criminal justice reform.
0: That's right. Uh, Anat Shanker Osorio isn't a household name. She might be after our show. We'll see. But she's very well tuned into why Democrats' messages often fall flat with voters. And we're delighted to have her here. But first, Ms. Lagos. Uh, remember when August was the slow month in vaguely. politics? vaguely. Uh, not so much anymore. Yeah, no more dog days of summer. Um, We had a few lawsuits uh, this week aimed at California. I know California has sued uh, Trump about 50 plus times, but this week the Trump re-election campaign teamed up with the uh, National Republican Party and the California Republican Party to sue uh, over uh, a bill that he signed last week, the SB 27 bill to force Trump to uh, release his taxes. Not a surprise. Yeah, it's like Guy uh, and I are
2: clairvoyant. I think a week ago we were saying, oh, there's going to be a lawsuit. And there are. There's multiple lawsuits. I mean, no surprise. I do think that it will be fascinating to see kind of how this plays out in court. Um, And, you know, I think that the... The question is whether the previous Democratic governor gave uh, the a little Republicans, bit of a roadmap. yeah, a little bit of a roadmap because he did veto this, right, and, and took he, a very different tack than New. He did, and
0: the message was uh, a, I'm not sure this is constitutional, and, and b, it's kind of a slippery slope if you're asking now for tax returns. What comes next? Your mental health records, your health records, maybe your Amazon purchases or your Netflix <laughs> rentals. You know, where does it end? And you know, these there's also sort of unintended consequences sometimes on these sorts of well, on anything really but you know tom steyer hasn't released his taxes well uh, as neither have a lot of others Jerry brown neither did yeah. a lot of
2: democrats so i think that that's going to be kind of interesting to see how um the candidates individually respond if this is upheld i mean we'll see but probably
0: we'll be on a fast track i would guess i think if,
2: they, i mean it has to be right well it's, it's yeah. a constitutional question and they got to resolve it by by, by the December, time they start winning really. ballots yeah, yeah which exactly. is not far away yeah i mean the other thing th- this week we did hear from newsom um here at KQED, he talked to Saul Gonzalez, our New California report correspondent, about white nationalism and this debate we're having in this nation right now, in the wake of yet more horrific shootings, um, the Gilroy shooting, of course, and the one in El Paso, considered domestic terrorist incidents um,
0: and being investigated and, by the FBI as such.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, Newsom told Saul this week that he really sees white nationalism and this rise of these domestic terrorists as one of the biggest safety issues facing California, which I think it comes to us. As a surprise to some people, and he talked about the fact that one of his first briefings at the Office of Emergency Services was not about earthquakes wildfires. or wildfires <laughs> or those things that we might expect, but this very issue. And I think that speaks to how, even though there's this political debate over how serious it is within law enforcement circles, they th- there's no debate happening.
0: Exactly, and you know we think of California as being so blue, uh, but there are a lot of red parts of California. And when you look at the map of where some of these groups are. A lot of them are actually not that far from the Bay Area, Mm-mm. you know. So it is something that is definitely on the radar of law enforcement, uh, and sadly, um, you know what happened in Gilroy. Uh, just a reminder that it can happen anytime, any place. We'll see whether or not there's, you know. We keep wondering, is this the tipping point, right. you know, where perhaps yeah. gun control? McConnell
2: will... did say today that he's going to think about considering gun control legislation. Yeah,
0: so. down down the road, perhaps. <laughs> well, and, and Marisa, you spent some time uh, in the slammer this week uh, with Governor Newsom <laughs> uh, in Vacaville Prison. How did that happen?
2: Uh, I got a call from the governor's office asking if I could come down and, um, you know, with him on this tour. He was doing a Solano uh, State Prison. This is, as you said, out in Vacaville, um, really to look at both um, just sort of the prison in general, but in specific, this uh, Delancey Street Foundation, which is a really well-known entity in San Francisco, held formerly homeless, drug addicted, um, people with criminal past really get on their feet. And they've been running a really fascinating program in the prison that's been um, so far in in four years very successful. So, yeah, I got a chance to to see that tour with Newsom and to kind of see the questions he's asking um, of, you know. Folks at the prison and the inmates themselves um, talked a little bit about what he says is really the hardest thing about being governor, which is these parole decisions that come fast and furious every week. And um, so, yeah, more to come tomorrow uh, on on our air on that. On and then I'll be reporting this out, and I'm hoping to potentially do some more of those visits and really get a sense of what you know what he's hearing on the ground as he looks at not just the criminal justice reforms you and I have both covered. Which are affecting sort of prospective inmates in terms of shorter sentences, but what are they going to do about the 127,000 inmates in our still overcrowded prisons? And I'm
0: always, uh, I guess, impressed and surprised when you go into a prison just how carefully the inmates are following the news. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Of course, they have a lot of time to do that, but they really pay attention to ballot measures and changes that are being debated in the legislature I'm sure they know all about bail reform and I think you mentioned that one of the inmates even thanked uh, former governor Jerry Brown for some of the things he had done
2: yeah no they called that out um, thanks obviously governor Newsom for uh, he got a standing ovation for his death penalty uh, decision to, to suspend those in California so yeah definitely um, they are very aware not just of the policy but of who is pushing them and um, I think it'll be interesting to see how this governor tackles something that you know I think Brown tried to get his arms around as well.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by message maven, Anat Schenker Osorio. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. dot -dot kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer along with Marisa Lagos. And our guest this week is someone who studies political messaging and helps Democrats in particular shape the pitch to voters on a wide range of issues. Anant Shankar Asario, welcome to Political Breakdown.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You bet. Well, we want to get into your background and how you got into it because you have a very interesting background. I want to ask you about your stand-up comedy days, for example. (laughs) But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about what you do exactly. How do you go about shaping messages, and and, and for whom?
3: Yeah, so my background is in cognition and linguistics, which means that I look at and study why certain messages resonate and others don't. And I do empirical testing of different sorts where we actually expose people to different kinds of messages and see how that alters their policy perceptions and find that sometimes something as simple as a single wording choice can radically alter what they think about a policy and how they
0: wanna vote. Um, Can you give an example of that?
3: Yeah, so um, I can give so many. For example, when we ask people about prescription drug companies, On net, they are net favorable to the overall population, and particularly for persuadable voters in terms of rating. Do you like them, dislike them? But when we ask them about prescription drug corporations, suddenly that assessment flips.
2: companies versus corporations. Yeah.
3: Price versus cost when we're talking about drugs renders a very different verdict. How so? Well, when we talk about the price of a drug, and I can use examples outside of this domain as well, um, what that suggests to people is a an affixed thing, that that is what someone chooses to charge. When we talk about the cost of a prescription drug, the word cost in American English, the way that it's used, implies some sort of inherent value. Well, that's just what it costs. That's mm. how much it Requires to produce it. But The price and is flexible. The price is something some CEO who felt like he a, needed a seventy-fifth yacht just decided to fix at a corporation. It. Um, all right. Well, we're gonna. I want to get deeper
2: into you know how you're assessing what's happening now and the the research you've done around messaging for Democrats. But quickly pass or fail like how would you say so far the 2020 candidates on the democratic side are doing with messaging in a
0: general way right
3: in a general way um well there's a lot of them yeah
0: that's, <laughs> true. Yeah, that's, why I that's true. one
3: cannot assist them as a class that doesn't seem fair
0: we'll get into the more details
3: later <laughs> um, Well, I think one thing that is remarkable and it's worth lauding and holding up is how much more overt discussion we've had about race, Mm -hmm. even previous to the most recent incidents that kind of indicate that we have no choice but to talk about race, um, which we should have recognized we didn't have that choice all along. Uh, There's a
0: counter narrative to that, right? That, oh, we don't want to, quote unquote, scare off the white working class voters.
3: Yeah. So it turns out that when you recognize that politics is not solitaire and that you your message has to not just work as offense, but also act in rebuttal to what the rest of voters are hearing, you realize that We don't have a choice but to talk about race because the other side never shuts up about race. And if Democrats and progressives more broadly are silent about race, then those conflicted voters in the middle are actually only receiving one message about it, and it's a really horrible one. So, are you working for any candidates? Are you like, how does like tell us just where you fit into the ecosystem?
0: Got to come clean with us here. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, um, right now, I like to call myself Team Better Messaging. I'm presently Team Better Messaging, by which I mean uh, I have given private briefings to multiple candidates and basically have extended that offer. There are some candidates and um, that have taken me up on it more regularly Can than you say others. Um,
0: and I ask because later we're going to maybe get into some specifics and it would be just good to know, you know, if you have yeah. who you're working for.
3: <laughs> um, well, at the risk of sounding cagey, I'm not working for any of them in any kind of like Deliberate capacity. I am available to sort of tell them the research that I know. Um, And like I said, there is one candidate that I have briefed more frequently than others, and that's Elizabeth Warren. Um, I spend more time with her team than I do with others because they've taken me up on it more than others have. Um, Hmm, Interesting. But for the most part, I really don't work for candidates. I really work on changing long-term attitudes about issues, so marriage equality, perceptions of immigrants, perceptions of people who are formerly incarcerated, long-term fights like the fight for 15 to raise wages um yeah that's yeah. where i focus. okay
0: so we and we will we do want to come back to the campaign and some of those specific issues uh, like immigration and criminal justice and all those things race for sure but you were born i think in tel aviv right
3: uh just outside but just yeah, just
0: outside tel aviv you know i think your parents came from poland my dad by the way was born in poland just as an aside <laughs> uh how did you end up there or how did they end up there really
3: um, well, my parents were born in 1949. So a post-war Poland, uh, probably not shocking Jews. Um, and in 1967, most people don't realize, but Poland expelled the remaining Jews. So. Many of them went to the United States. Uh, a lot of them went to Israel. There was a big, what we call an aliyah, wave, coming to Israel. And my parents were part of that migration.
0: How old were you when you when you left?
3: Um, when we first left, I was four, so I was little.
0: Do you remember much of it?
3: I mean, it's hard to say because we would go back all the time. So one has trouble remembering <laughs> which memories come from where and which come from stories. Uh, I. I mean, I definitely remember being there as a child. Yeah. Do you feel
2: like that? I mean, obviously, everything you're talking about is political. I don't know how political your parents were, but did that, those ex- family experiences draw you, to, you think, to where you are, both philosophically, but also in terms of your actual work?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think a few things. I think being in a multilingual household, my mother speaks seven languages. I speak five. I think the attraction to language and language study and the understanding of linguistic structures and the ability to communicate, absolutely a big, huge part of my life. My mom's an interpreter. Um, And then I think, honestly, being Jewish and an attachment to the values of social justice and the idea that Uh, it's our place to be here and to attempt to repair the world and to be an active part in completing God's creation. That was definitely all part of my upbringing.
0: And I think they moved to the Midwest. And were you in Madison? Madison. Madison. I lived in Madison for a year. Uh, Great town, uh, but very different, I would think, from Israel. Maybe you were so young it wasn't really culture shock, or was it?
3: Oh, I mean, it was culture shock because I lived in a, you know, deeply, deeply immigrant parents' household. And even though my parents... English is perfect. And, you know, they're deeply assimilated. Obviously, they speak with heavy accents and they come from a very, very different cultural vantage point. And so I think, I mean, there are so many stories I could share, but, uh, one example would be when we first came to the United States and my mother enrolled me in gymnastics and she's sitting there with the other mothers and they're all clapping and saying, good job, sweetie, good job, sweetie. And she's turning to the other mothers and saying, "Are we looking at the same kid. We can't do anything. What is this good job? What is this business? And, you know, my mother calling the other mothers and I quote, disgustingly cheerful. So a little different, <laughs> little different outlook than uh, bit. your average a Midwestern dark. mom.
2: What happens when up. you get
0: expelled from your country?
2: Yeah, well. Um, so so you end up going to undergrad in, in New York at Columbia. And um, yeah, we understand that while you were there, you did some stand-up
3: comedy. Can that, you tell us how that came about? Well, I can tell you that, that I'm old enough. That was pre the days when everything went onto the internet. And I'm very thankful. <laughs> I feel the same and way that, about my college experience. <laughs> <laughs> Grateful. Um, Yeah. I mean, I had been a performer in high school and it was just sort of a natural extension of that. And honestly, it was a way to make some money because New York's expensive. So, yeah, at that point. My routine was mostly, I mean, I should be giving my parents royalties. Basically, I would just get on stage and mimic them. There there really wasn't much to write. I would just verbatim repeat them. It
0: sounds I, like the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel a little bit. Are you a <laughs> fan of that show?
3: Definitely watch that show. Um, my clothes are not as good as hers. Do you, I mean, do you feel, though, like you uh, either intuitively
2: like understood things about communication that maybe made you successful at that or took something
3: from the stand-up that you're still using in what you do? Oh, I mean, I think that... It's definitely completely in what I do and an understanding of timing and rhythm and pace. And honestly, a lot of why I think the messages that I write and test compared to other people, why they end up doing better when they do, which is not all of the time, um, it's just a question of actually being able to write well. And it's a question of being able to hear and think through what is going to sound good to an audience. Yeah.
0: Well, let's get into the politics a little bit more, I think. I
3: know. I want,
2: I know. I'd I'd want to, talk to talk about her about, time in the Peace Corps. I know. But... In
0: Honduras, that's where you met your husband who Honduras. was a soccer – treasurer for a soccer team or something yeah, like that's that. That's a
2: true story. Got yeah. threatened by uh, some shady uh, oh, clear cutters. So, yeah, there's a so lot there. There's so many but...
3: things that happened <laughs>
2: in yeah. Honduras.
0: But uh, can't, let's, let's fast forward it to 2020. Or Actually, let's talk about 2016. Yeah. What do you th- – looking back now, there's been so much you know, Monday morning quarterbacking or whatever you want to call it. Um, What do you what's your takeaway from the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton's loss to, uh, to Donald Trump?
3: I mean, other than deep, deep sadness, I think when you think in its most simple terms about what we call the messaging quadrant, and this is simplified for sure, but when you think about a race and you recognize that when you're working with a candidate, you kind of have four boxes. You have what the candidate says in this case about herself, what the candidate says about the other person, the opponent, what the opponent says about themselves and what the opponent says about you. And you think about where you're spending your messaging capital in those quadrants. Obviously, only two out of those four are under your control. And When you just numerically quantify, for example, her ads, where one could argue those were completely under her control, she wrote them. I mean, her team's control, not her Mm -hmm. as an individual, of course. Something like 80% plus of her ads were actually about Donald Trump. And so among the many things that I could say about the 2016 election, I think the most salient one to me is that when she had the mic, she made the story about him. And when you have an issue not merely of persuasion but of activation, which in the United States context we have an issue of activation because we have a voter population that is hard to turn out, you have to give people a reason to vote for you, not merely a reason to revile your opposition. And do you think that that is on both sides? Because one of the
2: things we hear is like this narrative that Democrats win on hope, Republicans win on fear, or – conversely, this whole question of whether Democrats should focus on winning back voters that went for Obama, then Trump versus turning out new voters who maybe haven't come out in in the past.
3: I mean, how do you square all that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have so many answers to that. The first one is that At a fundamental level, when you look at how Democrats versus Republicans do message testing, there's actually a mathematical difference. And it's something that I discovered in 2011 when I was doing an investigation with a whole team of folks into immigrant rights messaging. And basically, that distinction is that, as Frank Luntz once said, and I quote, I dial for the red meat. In other words, looking for a message that deeply engages his base Because he understands that if your words don't spread, they don't work. And if the base won't repeat them, by definition, the message isn't persuasive because nobody hears it. Mm. In contrast, it is commonplace for Democratic pollsters to be on the phone with their candidate and say things like, it even tests well with the opposition. They're looking for a milk toast message. They score messages based upon what gets the highest overall score in the sample, irrespective of who the people are in the sample. That's not how I work.
0: So you're saying it doesn't matter or maybe it's you should be looking to upset the opposition. Donald Trump certainly does.
3: Listen, if you want to touch a nerve, you're going to have to touch a nerve. And so when I test for messages, what I'm looking for is first and foremost, It engages the base and moves them from agreement where they already are to want to repeat and to want to act. Number two, it persuades the middle and it actually alienates some segment of the opposition because that's how you know your message isn't merely persuasive. It's actually progressive.
0: In case you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking to political messaging consultant Anat Shankar Osorio. She's the founder and principal of ASO Communications and I think you wanted to jump in with a question. Yeah,
2: well, I guess I'm just like at, like talking about then what what you're talking about in terms of the difference between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, Is there a danger or like what is there a pushback you hear from Democrats in sort of my entire life is a pushback. (laughs) (laughs) And why is that? I mean, why, especially given what's happened over the last few years where, you know, things to a lot of people seem very upside down from where they thought they would
3: be. Um, Like, what is what is it that they're fearful of? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it, if we're being very brutally honest, is that. A lot of Democrats, not all, but many, are financed in the same terrible places as Republicans. So in reality, if I or someone else is pushing them to a truly progressive message, a message that is about environmental stewardship, a message that is about racial justice, a message that is about decarceration and taking back and wresting control from these corporations and this 1% that have basically sucked us all dry, they don't necessarily support that. So one issue is... If you're trying to push people into a progressive message and they're not deeply progressive, that's a problem.
0: So uh, Elizabeth Warren, who you said you've done some work with, um, she came to San Francisco for the convention, the <clears throat> excuse me, the Democratic Party convention, and she had these big billboards that said, break up big tech right here in the heart of yeah. the tech industry. That's is Engage
3: that? the base, persuade yeah. the middle, alienate so th- the opposition.
2: That's exactly She's what listening. you're talking
0: about. <laughs>
3: Or to
2: someone, at least. She's listening to someone. So. so talk about the research you guys have done since 2016. Because I think you, you unlike a lot of people, are basing what you're saying on actual empirical evidence. That's right. <laughs> so what did you guys find? Uh, what did you set out to look for? And then what did you find?
3: Yeah. So the biggest project that I engaged in in the US, and I should be clear, I do a lot of work outside the US, so just focused here, um, was um, a project that we call the Race Class Narrative. And that project was undertaken with a person named Ian Haney Lopez, who's a Berkeley law professor and wrote Dog Whistle Politics. And basically, Ian came to me post-2016 and said, I believe that there is a message that both engages the base and persuades the middle, that this is a false construct that we have to either go chasing after the working class, by which we somehow mean white people, because I guess black and brown people are all living high on the hog, and persuades the middle. That there's no choice that we need to make, and that's a false construct. And that that message is one of narrating the dog whistle, of exposing the fact that racial speech, that scapegoating of people based upon what we look like, where we come from, is a tactic and a technique of the right wing in order to divide us from each other based upon our race and place of origin and whatever they pick topic of the day, so that we will look the other way and not join together. Essentially, it is a point your finger at the bad guy, not the brown guy message. And indeed, what we found through empirical testing through a year of both national experiments and deeper dives in four states, including our own here in California, is that a race class message, a message that speaks overtly about race that is not quiet about it outperforms a colorblind economic populist message, not just with our base, but with the middle.
0: And give a, an example of what what, a, what kind of message you're What
3: a race about. class narrative message sounds like. So it sounds more or less like, no matter our differences, most of us want pretty similar things. Or whether we're white, black, or brown, most of us work hard for our families. So it begins in a shared value that names race. But today a wealthy few and the politicians they pay for divide us from each other based upon what we look like and where we come from so we won't join together to demand the very basic things that working people need no matter what our color. It's kind of like a positive and negative message, right? Like It's, it's like you're hitting both
2: sides. I'm curious, I know you said that that did um, work with both the base, the Democratic base, and what you call persuadables, what we might call swing voters in the media. But I noticed in some of the research we read that it wasn't as successful with the persuadables. Is that fair? Like, like, what are the margins here? Is is this like it's not going to convince everybody, right? Oh, absolutely
3: not. So what we're measuring for is, like I said, that base activation—that it both gets the agreement, the desire to repeat, and then also the desire to mobilize. And with persuadables, what we're looking to do is outperform the opposition message, which is a dog whistle. Let us not kid ourselves. Because one of the things, one of the ancillary things that we saw in the testing that was really eye-opening was that anytime we did what we call a forced choice question, which is you present two propositions and you say, which of the following more closely represents your view? And you do an opposition one and you do a progressive one. Anytime time the opposing one had a dog whistle in it, a culture of people expecting everyone handed to them, which is the OG dog whistle. Everybody knows that a culture of people means Swedish backpackers, right? <laughs> or, you know, illegal immigrants or Sharia law or our way of life, you know, whatever the dog whistle is. If it was a dog whistle on their side and a colorblind message on our side, in the conservative parts of our national sample, they won but when it was just a conservative economic argument and a progressive one, no dog whistling, we trounced them. Their economic argument alone doesn't work for them. They have to dog whistle.
0: But in so, presidential politics in particular, it's not just the message, it's the messenger.
3: 100%. And
0: so how, which of those is more important? I mean, you can give Al Gore, uh, John Kerry, you know, pick somebody, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, the right message. But if people don't like them, it's a it's a higher higher barrier. Right.
3: Yeah. Um, I want to answer that. I just want to say I didn't really answer your question about how it tested. Do I should I go back to that? Or are we good? That's OK. OK. Sorry.
0: We're good. Yeah. We have like two minutes. Left. OK.
3: <laughs> um, yes. The messenger, absolutely critical. And, you know, the overlay over all of this that one needs to be realistic about is that partisanship is a hell of a drug. And what I mean by that is that when we test messages, things that perform incredibly well, that are both persuasive to 65 percent of the voting populace and incredibly mobilizing and activating to our 20 percent base. And we're looking at it and giving it gold stars. As soon as you put the overlay, a Democratic candidate says it completely alters perception. Partisanship is a strong drug, but. I work on the outside. Right. So I work on what these grassroots and labor, I work a lot with unions, what it is we're saying to bolster a message that the Democrats then need to sweep in and, you know, use for the candidate. Exactly. All
2: right. Final question. How does all of what you study help you as a mom?
0: We're going to ask your son later. Yeah, right.
3: Your... <laughs> well, if, if my son's here, I very well can't tell you, just, are you. He just perked <laughs> up. <It's> Excuse <interesting. laughs> me. I'm not going to just, like, reveal the story. Like, <laughs> what what do we need thing? to know? <laughs> um, You know what? It is funny. It is so much of what we know works in parenting actually works in messaging, and that is ordering effects. So a lot of times what separates a good message from a bad one is that a bad one starts in a problem, and a good one starts in an affirmation and does the problem second.
2: All
0: right, right. I'm going
3: to take that home.
0: Yeah, take it home. Thank you so much for coming in. So much more we could have talked about, but that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio.
2: Our producer today is Guy Marzorati, and our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And
0: I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody.